As you know, we've been going through a series looking at the world's largest philosophical questions. It's been said that the three largest questions of mankind are as follows. Number one, which we've already covered, where did I come from? Number two, where am, or why am I here? And number three, where am I going? Today's message will answer the question, where am I going? Before we look at Revelation 20, though, let me give you some false views concerning the destiny of mankind. These are various ideas, opinions of, of different people uh, from, from all regions of the world. Number one is nirvana. Nirvana, that's an Asian Hindu philosophy which teaches that at death, a person ceases all personal existence and is absorbed into the universe. So that's one opinion on the destiny of mankind. Number two is restorationism. Restorationism is the belief that in a future life, all people will be given a second chance to make the choice for God that they did not make during this life. By the way, that sounds similar to universalism, doesn't it? And it's very similar. Number three, materialism. Materialism is an atheistic belief that man upon death forever ceases to be and just quietly rots into nothingness. Number four is annihilationism. Annihilationism teaches that all the ungodly will someday literally be uncreated or annihilated by God. Number five is soul sleep. Soul sleep teaches that the soul sleeps between death and the resurrection. They don't actually go anywhere. And then number six is purgatory. That's the belief that all those who die at peace with the church, but are not perfect yet, must undergo some penal and purifying sufferings. And then there's limbo. Limbo teaches that all unbaptized children and the, the mentally incompetent upon death proceed to a, a permanent place of natural happiness, but it's not heaven. And then there's reincarnation. Reincarnation is the belief in the rebirth of the soul, where your soul is continually rebirthed to, to come back as something else, and you, depending on how you lived your life on this earth, is the is dependent on what you come back as. And then with religion, you get all kinds of ideas, but religion often, sadly, even, even amongst evangelicalism today, it, it, religion often teaches that there is a God, but He is a God of love. And therefore, this God of love would not and could not possibly send anyone to a place called hell. That's a prominent belief today. I would dare say if you were to take a poll of the churches in New Zealand today, even the evangelical churches in New Zealand today, most of them would believe that last point. Most people don't believe in a literal hell. They don't like to think of, of, of a God of wrath and justice and holiness. They just prefer to think of a God as love. Revelation 20 <clears throat> describes the final sentencing of the lost. I mean, these are, these are all people's ideas here we've talked about, but it doesn't match up with God's ideas. 
Because the important thing is, what does the Bible say? The Bible is the final authority for all faith and practice. These are the words of the living God. What he says is what matters. Not all these people's opinions on the destiny of mankind. And Revelation 20 is an important passage. It's describing the final sentencing of the lost. And for me, really, is one of the most serious, sobering, and tragic passages in the entire Bible. You, you should not, and, and, and you, hopefully you can't read this and not be sobered by it. This is commonly known as the Great White Throne Judgment. It is the last courtroom scene that is ever going to take place. And after this judgment, there's never again going to be another trial. This is the last trial, and God is never again going to need to act as judge. There's going to be accused who will stand before the judge. These are the unsaved dead people of the, of the whole world, and they're going to be resurrected to experience a trial like no other that has ever been. Here's what John MacArthur had to say about this passage. I quote, There will be no debate over their guilt or innocence. There will be a prosecutor but no defender, an accuser but no advocate. There will be an indictment but no defense mounted by the accused. The convicting evidence will be presented with no rebuttal or cross-examination. There will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury, and there will be no appeal of the sentence he pronounces. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of parole in a prison from which there is no escape. End quote. You might ask me, you know, why is this happening? Why is this in the Bible? The Bible shows us that God is the supreme judge of the universe. His judgment of unbelievers is going to be just. Why is it going to be just? How do we know it's going to be just? Because God is just. That's part of his character. And lest you doubt what God does here is unjust, let me show you some other portions of Scripture on the screen here. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. That includes the great white throne judgment, by the way. Anyway, it goes on to say, He is a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteousness and upright is He. Job 37 says this, The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power, and He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear Him. So before we get into our passage here in Revelation 20, I want to lay some groundwork here for you, okay? Please understand this, okay? As we look at this, we need to understand that what we're seeing here is a God who is just. The God of the universe, the judge of the universe will do what is right. He always does what is right. We cannot question that. He cannot be unjust because the absolute holy perfection of his, his own nature is not going to allow him to do anything that is not right. God's will is the supreme standard of justice and equity, and he wills nothing but what is just, right, and true. So those who like to question justice and say, you know, hey, this isn't fair or whatever, need to understand that justice is God's very nature. He can't do anything that is not just. So all of God's acts toward people are perfectly just. On the other hand, sinners have 
wronged God's justice. We've all wronged God's justice because we're all sinners. But God's justice has never wronged sinners. That's just not possible. Because that would go against his very nature. No one at the great white throne judgment is going to have a good reason to complain about their sentence. Everybody who stands at this judgment is going to know that the judge of the universe is doing what is right. The reason for that is because those who reject God's grace and mercy in this life will inevitably face his justice in the life to come. Now we need to understand the context here. Okay, The context has uh, several chapters before and several chapters afterward. Let me just mention what's going on here, okay? In chapter 19, we have the second coming of Christ taking place. Now, we're not going to look at chapter 19, but you need to understand that the great white throne is taking place after Christ's second coming. And then in the beginning of chapter 20, you have the 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth, called the millennium. And then you come to verses 11 through 15, which is coming after the 1,000-year reign of Christ, we have this vision of the great white throne judgment. And this vision here of the great white throne judgment is actually taking place before the new heaven and the new earth, which we talked about last week. You can read about that in chapter 21. So the context is after Christ's second coming, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, but it's before the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? Do you understand when this is taking place now? That's the context. So let's talk about what the Apostle John saw. Number one, the Apostle John here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, receives these, this wonderful vision, and he sees that the judge is King Jesus. The judge is King Jesus. Look at uh, Revelation 20, verse 11. The first thing he sees is, he said, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. You say, now wait a minute, I don't see Jesus' name there, I don't see Christ, Messiah, or any of those things. So how do we know that Jesus Christ is the judge? Well, Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. You look at the screen here, you'll see John 5.22, it says that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So we know that the judge here at the great white throne has to be God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. It cannot be God the Father, because the Father says he gives all judgment to Jesus Christ. So that's how we know it's Jesus. But what's the first thing that John saw? In verse 11, he sees a great white throne. That's significant. It's very significant. In fact, in the book of Revelation, you'll see great white throne that is, is nearly 50 times mention of a throne in the book of Revelation. It's obviously something very significant to this book. This is a judgment throne. It's, this throne is elevated. This throne is pure. This throne is holy. And God is sitting on it as judge in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is this throne called great? Notice the description given here in our Bibles. These are the words of the living God, and he says that it is a, a great white throne. Well, commentators have debated on this one. 
I think it, that, that it's called great because of its significance, its majesty, and its authority. Why is the throne the color white? You have to understand, every single word mentioned in your Bible is significant. Why white? Well, you, you should know white in the Bible is a significant color. It's symbolizing purity, holiness, and justice. This great, holy, elevated, pure, powerful throne is also a pure and holy place. The prophet Daniel described this scene in his book of the Bible. Very similar scene. It's here on the wall for you. Daniel 7, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. It's another description of what's taking place here in Revelation 20. But even more awe-inspiring than the throne was the vision of God himself. It was the vision of God. Okay, the point isn't to, to look at the throne and say, oh, wow, what a cool throne. No, the point of this vision is to say, wow, what a great God. <laughs> now, how do you describe God? I mean, poor John, he's given this impossible task of trying to describe the, the scene here and trying to describe God and, and the best that, that John does, John just says, him who is seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. <laughs> he sees this incredible vision, and that's all he can say. That amazing statement describes, by the way, the uncreation of the universe. When John says that earth and sky fled away, he's talking about the uncreation of the universe. In other words, John saw this contaminated universe that we live in go out of existence it, it's destroyed it's dissolved why why is this universe have to be destroyed why does this earth have to be destroyed because this present universe we live in is totally contaminated and tainted by sin it is subject to decay and death and so god is going to get rid of it and in verse chapter 21 he's going to make all things new God is not going to permit anything that's corrupted by sin to exist in his universe. At least in the eternal state. Everything is going to be new, perfect, and without sin. Peter describes this uncreation, if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, it's on the wall for you. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Praise God that things are not going to continue as they, they are today. Because everything is tainted and corrupted by sin. 
So God is going to make all things new, even the heavens, even the stars and the planets out there that, that we don't even touch. They're all going to be made new as well. Well, what else does John see in this vision? Not a, <laughs> he sees a lot of things, but as the, the next scene in this ultimate courtroom drama unfolds for, his, for us here, we see the prisoners. The prisoners are summoned from their cells. That's where they are at the moment, by the way. The prisoners are at the moment in their cells, and they are going to appear before Jesus Christ, the judge. Since their deaths, their souls have been tormented in a place of, of punishment that we call hell. By the way, you need to understand that hell is not permanent. Hell is only a temporary place of punishment. Because as we see in this passage, hell is going to be cast into the permanent place of eternal punishment called the lake of fire. And so all people who have died without putting their trust in Jesus Christ are in a temporary holding cell called hell. And they're going to be called from those temporary holding, soul, hold, holding cells to the courtroom. And now is their time to come before the judge of the universe to be sentenced to the final eternal hell called the lake of fire. And the next thing that John sees here is that the dead are judged according to their works. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So we see here an amazing sight, don't we? The Bible says here, notice it says, the dead, great and small, are going to stand before God. These are guilty people. These are condemned prisoners, if you will, standing before the bar of divine justice. And notice that they are all physically dead. There is no one who is unsaved who is alive at this point. They're all dead. They are, there are no living sinners left in the destroyed universe since all sinners were either killed or, or, and, and, and the believers are glorified at this point. There's no believers here. No one's going to be able to survive the destruction of the universe. No one's going to survive that. So everybody's going to be dead at this point. And if you say, well, what about the believers? Where are they? Where are the genuine Christians? Well, the Bible makes it clear, that, and it teaches that no believer is ever going to face God's judgment, because Romans 8, verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's just one of many passages which proves the point that the great white throne judgment is not for believers. Believers will stand at the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. Now to emphasize the all-encompassing scope of the judgment here, John notes that the crowd of unbelievers before God's throne here is including both the great and the small. In other words, John's not leaving anybody out here. God's not leaving anyone out. You say, well, what is the point? What is the point of mentioning both the great and the small? The point is that all unbelievers are going to face God's judgment one day. All of them. That includes 
those who think they're somebodies and those who are nobodies. That includes the rich and the poor, the intelligent and the not-so-intelligent, and everybody else who doesn't fit those categories. If you're an unbeliever, you've never put your trust in Christ alone, you will stand before the divine bar of God's judgment at the great white throne. How are the unsaved judged? The Bible says here that the books were opened. How are they judged? They are judged according to their works. That's why it mentions these books. These books have their listed out their works. And they're judged according to their works or their deeds. These books are recording every thought, every word, every deed that every unsaved person has ever thought, said, or done. Everyone. All recorded by God's all-knowing mind. God knows all things. He sees all things. He is everywhere. Nothing escapes his all-seeing gaze. And so these books are going to provide the evidence for eternal condemnation. These people are going to stand before Jesus Christ, and, and they will have no excuse because the records are there. God knows even more than they do. <laughs> and so, my friends, think about this. Just think about this. God has kept perfect, accurate, and comprehensive records of every person's life. It's mind-boggling. By the way, did you notice in our passage here, there's a mention of not just one book, but it mentions multiple books? That means there has to be at least two books, and some theologians say that there's at least five books. I don't know, but we know at least two books because it mentions books here. What is the book of life, by the way? Because it specifically mentions the book of life. What is the book of life? It, well, the book of life is a book that contains a list of names of all redeemed people who have put their faith and their trust in Christ alone. So if you have ever put your trust in Christ alone for salvation... To get yourself, to, you can't, by the way, you can't get yourself to heaven, but if, you, if you're going to heaven, your name is in the book of life. Jesus knows you. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What is in the other books? Well, the Bible says that the, the dead here were judged according to their works. They're judged according to their works. In other words, their thoughts, their words, their actions are going to be compared to God's perfect standard. What is the perfect standard? What is God's holy standard? Well, of course, it's his own very nature. God's perfect holy standard is his own very character, his nature, and of course, the Bible. They're going to be judged according to that standard, and guess what? They're going to be found wanting. So this implies here that there's degrees of punishment. In eternity, it appears that there's going to be degrees of punishment. Now, I'm not going to take the time to prove that, but there's other portions of Scripture that, that, that imply this. That means that people like the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Gaddafis and the Saddam Husseins of the world will receive different punishments from the nice the nice, you know, dear old lady who was basically never mean to anyone in her life, but never put her trust in Jesus Christ. 
There's going to be a different standard, if you will. No, sorry. There's the same standard, but different degrees of punishment. What else does John see in this vision? Number three, he sees that God resurrects bodies for the unbelievers. God resurrects bodies for the unbelievers. Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. So here we see the prisoners, again, they're, they're being summoned from their prison cells, the temporary place called hell. And they're going to appear before Jesus Christ, who is the judge. And since their deaths, their souls have been tormented in a place of punishment called hell. And now the time has come for them to be sentenced to the final hell. Since the old earth is, is destroyed at this, birth, at, at this point, because remember... The heavens and the earth fled away before the judge. That means that the, the old earth and the old heavens are destroyed. They're gone. It's destroyed. And so we have to ask, well then, where do the resurrected bodies come from if the old earth is destroyed? Well, notice the Bible says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Before the sea was uncreated, and before the sea goes out of existence, that means... The sea has to give up the dead. Now, why is this important? Why is God even mentioning this? Well, some commentators and theologians speculate that could it be that the sea is the place that, that we often think of a, of a place as the, the hardest place to retrieve a body? You ever thought about that? I mean, look at the news this week and last week. There's been people missing there's many people around the world who've gone missing in, in various boating trips. And their bodies have never been found. Here, I think this is the significance. Why is this important? Because no place is too difficult for God to resurrect bodies. No place is outside of God's reach, including the oceans. Now this is truly amazing because we see here God is going to summon from the depths these new bodies... For all who have perished in the seas and the oceans throughout all of history. By the way, that includes the worldwide flood of Genesis. That includes all of those, those people who went down in the Titanic to the bottom of the ocean. Those people on the Titanic who were unsaved. God is going to resurrect their bodies from the Titanic and bring them to, to the throne before Jesus. There's a picture of the Titanic on the screen there, by the way, which is hard to see. Well, what about all the people who died on land then? What about all the people who died on land? Because it doesn't actually mention land here, does it? It only mentions the sea. Well, the Bible says that death and Hades gave up the dead. So it doesn't leave out the land because it's mentioning death and Hades. Both terms are describing the state of death. So it, this is an all-encompassing statement then. Everybody in the state of death, all the unbelievers who are in the state of death, will be given resurrected bodies. By the way, death symbolizes all the places on the land from which God is going to resurrect these new bodies for the unsaved dead. Hades, uh, a, a similar term to Hades. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol is the Hebrew equivalent. 
But Hades is always used in reference to the place of punishment where the unsaved dead are kept pending their sentence to hell. All unsaved dead are going to appear here before the great white throne judgment. None are going to escape. All the places that have held the bodies of these unsaved dead are, are going to yield up those bodies and then God is going to give them bodies that are suitable for the lake of fire. What else did John see in this vision? Number four, he sees the unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire forever. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, the evidence is absolutely irrefutable. The verdict is given to these people who stand guilty before the judge. Judgment's going to be swiftly carried out. And as the sentence is passed here, the grave and the temporary place of punishment is thrown into the lake of fire. These inmates are going to be united with specially designed resurrected bodies that can handle a place like the lake of fire. Apparently, in the present state, they won't be able to handle that. So God is going to give them specially designed, resurrected bodies that can live forever in this place of eternal punishment. Again, it's probably kind of hard to see if, uh, the picture up here on the wall of someone's idea of the lake of fire. We don't necessarily know what it looks like. But the most vivid of the New Testament terms that helps us to understand the lake of fire or this final hell is the Greek word Gehenna. It's a Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna is the New Testament word for the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which in the Old Testament, by the way, often called Topheth. Topheth, if you read your, your, your Old Testament, you'll see this place called Topheth, which was southwest of Jerusalem. I've given you a map here which, again, it's probably hard to see, the dark, the dark area on the southwest side of Jerusalem there on that map on the wall shows you the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which in Old Testament was called Topheth. But, but back in the Old Testament, it was a, it was a very nice place. It was, it was like going to Hamilton Gardens. It was a beautiful spot with lots of trees and, and, and maybe even flowers, a beautiful place to go for a walk. But sadly, it became a place of idolatry in the Old Testament, a place where, where the Israelites would go and, and worship false gods like Molech and Baal, and they would burn their children in the fire like this, like this next picture. They would bring their children to, to Molech or Baal, and they would put their children in the red-hot burning hands of Molech, and then eventually they would dump the child into the burning flames and the child would die and they would listen as their child was screaming to death in the flames. This was a place of idolatry, the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And so in the Old Testament we see good king Josiah comes and destroys the valley of Ben-Hinnom and it was never, it was never a nice place to, to go ever again. In Old Testament times, the idolatrous Israelites 
as I said, would burn their children in the fires as sacrifices to these false gods. And we, we can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 19. If you can read that, it's on the wall there. It says, Jeremiah 19, Go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the Potsherd Gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hear of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Well, in Jesus' day, the valley of Ben-Hinnom was still there. It was the site of Jerusalem's rubbish dump. It wasn't a nice place. It was where they took their rubbish. The fires were constantly burning. They would have these fires burning in the rubbish dump to burn up their rubbish. And the place was a very smelly place. The rubbish, uh, from, from what people like the historians said, like Josephus, uh, he said that it was a place of maggots. It was an incredibly smelly place. You'd probably almost want to throw up if you, if you were able to get a whiff of the stink coming from that place. And sometimes even bodies of criminals were dumped in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. What's the point? The valley of Ben-Hinnom was a suitable place to picture eternal hell. This was the place that Jesus was pointing to when he talked about Gehenna. And everybody knew what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem that was constantly burning, was filled with maggots, it was filled with the stench. It was not a suitable place to be. It was a horrible place. It was a suitable picture for eternal hell, and it had to be because Jesus referred to this place often in the New Testament. You say, what is the lake of fire like? Because we don't really get a very good description here about the lake of fire. You really have to go to Jesus' descriptions of the lake of fire in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He talked a lot about Gehenna. And so we really have to go back to the, the Gospels to find that answer. Let me just give you a few descriptions of the lake of fire that Jesus gives us. Number one, Jesus said it was a place of total darkness. It's a place of total darkness, which, you, you think about that, that means it is going to isolate the inmates in a place of solitary confinement. There will be no light in their solitary confinement. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 12, he said, While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Outer darkness. It's total darkness. Total absence of light. These people aren't even going to be able to see their hands in front of their faces. Number two, it's a place of banishment from God's kingdom. 
Jesus said in Matthew 22, 13, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. They will be banished from the kingdom forever. Number three, it's a place of torment that never ends. Place of torment that never ends. Look at verse 10, Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's a place of torment that never ends. Number four, Jesus said it's a place of eternal fire. Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. So notice Jesus says it's a place of unquenchable fire. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Number five, it's a place of frustration and anger. Jesus said in Matthew 13, Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why are the people weeping? Why are they gnashing their teeth? Why are they grinding their teeth together? Because they're frustrated, they're angry, they're in torment. They don't like where they're at, and they can't get out. You say, this sounds like a horrible place, and it is a horrible place. Nobody should want to go there. Nobody should make light of this place. I was talking to someone one time, and I asked them, if you were to die today, do you know 100% sure that you would immediately be in Jesus' presence in heaven? And this person said, no, I'm going to hell. And leave me alone, please, because that's where my friends are. I was so sad when I heard that. That person did not understand the seriousness, the soberness, and, and the, horror to- of the, hor- of the, the horror and the torment that was yet to come if they did not change. So how do you avoid this horrible place? How do you avoid this place? There is only one way to avoid the terrifying reality of eternal punishment. Number one, we must confess our sins to God. The reason we go to hell is because of our sins. (laughs) My friends, we're all sinners, the Bible says. Everyone is unrighteous. There are none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory, the Bible says. And so our sin has separated us from God, and so we have to confess our sins to God. After all, He's the one whom we need to be saved from. Do you realize that? The only one who can save you is the one whom you need to be saved from. Number two, you need to ask God to forgive your sins on the basis of of Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this, my friends. Believe and trust Christ alone. He's your substitute. He took your place. He stood in your place on the cross. He bore the penalty for your sin, which you deserve. And He alone can do that because He's perfect. So truly believe that Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the grave to conquer sin and to conquer death. And only then will we be delivered from God's eternal wrath. I love what Romans 5, 9 says. Since therefore we have now been justified by His or Christ's blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You need Jesus to save you from God's wrath. 1 John says that Jesus is your propitiation. That means that Jesus is your wrath absorber. He absorbs God's wrath. He gets the full brunt. He stands between you and God's wrath. But my friends, if you don't stand behind Jesus, if you're not looking to Jesus and trusting in Him, you will get God's wrath and eternal punishment. There's no other option. Either Jesus takes God's wrath or you will get it in the lake of fire. My Christian friend, how should this message affect you? If you have put your faith and trust in Christ alone, then you are on your way to heaven. You will not spend eternity in the lake of fire. This place is not for you. But this message should have an effect upon us. Number one, it should make us examine ourselves. <laughs> Whenever we see this passage and read it and hear it preached, we must examine ourselves. Have you really passed from death to eternal life? Have you? Is that a reality? Or is that just something you think is going to happen to you? Or are you going to be like Matthew 7, those people who come before Jesus, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You can't afford to be uncertain about this, can you? Your eternal destiny depends on knowing for sure there is far too much at stake here. My friends, you need to remember that your heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. You need to remember that the devil is the deceiver of your soul. And if you understand that deceitfulness is in you, your own indwelling sin is in you, and your deceitfulness is all around us, then what do we do? What do we do? There's only one thing you can do. You have to compare yourself to the truth. Compare yourself to the standard. What's the standard? What's the truth? The Bible says that God's word is truth. God's word is truth. That's your standard. You need to compare yourself to that, not to people around you, not to what other people have done in, in past history, not what various church councils have said, but you need to compare yourself to the Bible. What does the Bible say? That's your standard to know whether or not you have really passed from death to eternal life. So my Christian friend, how should this message affect you? Number two, well, if you are a believer in Christ, this message should cause you to praise God. <laughs> praise God. You say, why? why praise God? I mean, this is a horrible passage. It's horrible. My friend, here, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this. I deserve to suffer the full weight of God's wrath. I deserve to go to the lake of fire. I deserve this punishment. And the only reason I'm not going to get this in the future is because of Jesus. God the Father elected me in, in, from the foundations of the earth. Jesus came, became a man, lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, and rose again, conquered my sin, paid the penalty of my sin, and is now in heaven at the right hand of God the Father interceding on my behalf. He is my great high priest. 
And the Holy Spirit is my guarantor, if you will. He is, he is the warranty. He is the seal of what God the Father and Jesus has already done for me. So I have every reason to praise God. Because I'm not going to get what I deserve. And if you put your trust in Jesus alone, then you're not going to get what you deserve. And you need to praise him now and for all eternity. Number three, if you are a believer in Christ, this message should motivate you to witness to all of the unsaved people that you know. Are you faithfully giving out the gospel which God uses to bring souls from death to life? You can't save anybody, but you can spread the word. You can be a witness. Jesus called us to be a witness. And the Holy Spirit can use that witness and use the good news of the gospel in people's lives to show them that they need Jesus. Are you praying for souls to be saved? The Bible calls us to pray for others, not just for the household of faith, but for all the lost. Jesus had compassion for the lost. Do you? Are you faithfully spreading the word? Doing your part to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, starting in your own Jerusalem, which of course is Hamilton, to the Waikato, to New Zealand, and, and then out to the uttermost part of the earth. We as a church, that's our responsibility. God calls us as a church to, to take his word, to make disciples. Are we doing that? Do we care? This message should cause us to... To, to have a motivation to that end. So may God give us hearts of compassion. Let's pray.